0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. In that study, we found that liver oxygen increased the in-hospital mortality by uh, roughly 20%.
1: Today, our article is titled, Inpatient Notes, Rethinking Oxygen Therapy for Hospitalized Patients. This article appeared in uh, Annals for Hospitalists in September of 2019. Joining us is the first author, Dr. Lisa Kim, who is a Respirology Fellow at McMaster University, where she also did her internal medicine training. Her co-authors in the study are Drs. Chu and Al-Hazani. We believe that you will learn a lot about the appropriate use of oxygen therapy in hospitalized patients from this episode. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Annals on Call. As I read uh, your article in Annals for Hospitalists, I thought to myself that this is one of the most important topics that we could talk about. There's a... uh, maybe not so cute phrase that's used a lot in the United States called the oxygen ferry. And the oxygen <laughs> ferry refers to you leave in the evening, the patient's not on oxygen, you come and make rounds the next morning, the patient's on oxygen, you have no idea why the patient's on oxygen, you don't even know if the patient needs oxygen, there's no note in the chart, no order. Does this happen in Canada also?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's uh, funny that you mention it, because this is sort of how our study initially uh, started out as, as the few of our colleagues talking about, you know, the, the oxygen theory. I mean, we don't, we don't have the same exact same term that we use here, but we were complaining or venting to each other that it seems like everyone seemed to be started on oxygen with, as you said, unclear indication. And uh this is sort of how we start to look into things. And, you know, every time you would try to take them off of oxygen uh, or, you know, point out that uh, we don't see a clear indication for a patient being on oxygen, even our other colleagues or, you know, other multidisciplinary team members would comment, would look at you, sort of funny, you know, this is really important, you know, because oxygen is so common. And I think it's such a common clinical scenario that what you just described.
1: Well, as an academic hospitalist, I make rounds with uh, residents and interns, and it seems like it happens all the time. And I'll just say that about a year ago, I went on a rant on Twitter about the oxygen ferry and the number of responses, and this is not uh, isolated one institution, and I've worked in several different hospitals, and the same thing happens everywhere. Do you know how big a problem this is? How much oxygen is being used, and, and who's putting it on?
0: It is a common scenario, and I think it's a very widespread uh, problem. And uh, I think just looking at the numbers, um, depending on which study that you actually look at, uh, but you know I think we can all agree that supplemental oxygen is one of the most commonly prescribed therapy in acutely ill patients, uh, especially in hospital setting. Uh, and some studies quote at least twenty five percent, or some say even you know fifty percent or more in patients in uh, emergency department, and you know fifteen to twenty percent of patients who are admitted to the hospital are exposed to supplemental oxygen. So it's a quite common therapy that we prescribe to, to patients, and certainly there are a lot of uh, areas or opportunities that they may be exposed, either it was uh, uh, for patient complaining of dyspnea or, you know, uh, sometimes I even heard uh, some other indication of from the nursing staff or our teaser um, uh, think that It would make patients more comfortable. That was one of the rationales that we hear quite often um, when there's unclear indication for supplemental oxygen use.
1: Okay. And just to translate, I believe RT stands for respiratory therapist. Is that correct? Yes. One of the things I loved about the article is your explanation about the difference between the body's response to hypoxemia and hyperoxemia. and Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I think that was really, really well done
0: the potential mechanism of harms of hyperoxia has been theorized and has been shown in animal models as well as the human volunteers. And I think in more recent years, there has been uh, more studies have been done showing the vasoconstrictive effects on the coronary circulation, uh, cerebral circulation, and overall systemic vasculature that has been well documented. And uh, there's also the generation of oxygen-free radicals in the body that would either have a direct impact such as in in the lungs uh, when you're exposed to it uh, and causing inflammatory uh, reactions uh, or otherwise uh, overall uh, free radicals uh, formation and causing systemic inflammatory reaction. The other aspect that gets overlooked or I would say frequently under-recognized of the potential harm of using the raw oxygen is that uh, it may Delay the recognition that your your patient is deteriorating in a, in the clinical scenarios, because you have been putting them on oxygen, maybe without clear indication or clear uh, hypoxemia, and then that sort of delays the timing of the critical timing um, where you should recognize the the clinical change uh, because they have been on oxygen and that's been maintaining their oxygen saturation. So I think that's frequently overlooked, but a, a very important component of potential mechanism of harms of liver oxygen use. Well, one of the
1: strengths of your paper is you first explain this and then you really present the data. You present the IOTUS systematic review and meta-analysis. And if you could go over this, I think all of us who practice in the hospital have uh, a sense that there's something going on here, but these data give us ammunition to talk to people.
0: So IOTA, the Improving Oxygen Therapy in Acute Illness, uh, was a systematic review and meta-analysis, and we tried to address the uh, optimal use of oxygen therapy in, in different clinical practice and practice settings. And we did a pretty comprehensive literature search and identified 25 randomized controlled trials, and we wanted to restrict it to high-quality studies, hence the inclusion criteria of randomized controlled trials. That included a little over... Uh, 16,000 patients um, that comparing liberal versus conservative oxygen uh, therapies in acutely hospitalized patients. And uh, we uh, define acute illness as, you know, any uh, non-elective hospitalization for various diagnoses that spans across sepsis, critical illness, stroke, trauma, MI, and uh, even emergency surgery population and cardiac arrest uh, that's included in our trial. And our mortality, uh, our, our outcome of interest, we specifically set out to focus on what's important to patients because we found that a lot of times previous studies have included a surrogate outcome and we wanted to really make sure that we focus on patient important outcomes. So that's why we chose uh, mortality at different time points uh, and morbidity uh, and, and infection uh, as an outcome uh, for us. In that study, we found that lower oxygen increased the in-hospital mortality by uh, roughly 20%. Uh, and our relative risk that we found was a 1.21, statistically significant uh, number, and that roughly translates to a number needed to harm uh, of 71. And I think one of the strength of our, our study is that the finding was consistent across all different populations that we looked at. Uh, we did a sensitivity analysis uh, uh, looking at uh, looking to see if there's any various effects in different uh, intervention methods, and we didn't see any. This is the first high quality synthesis of what was existing data uh, that we had looking into oxygen uh, supplemental oxygen therapy use. What
1: I love is you didn't just do the meta-analysis, but then you developed a very practical guideline. And I think it's important for all of us to absorb very carefully the critical points of this guideline. And in it, I really want you to define liberal use of oxygen versus conservative use, because Mm -hmm. as I read this, I wanna be very sure that when I'm taking care of my patients in the hospital, that I am conservative in the use of oxygen because of the data that you have shared with us?
0: In our study, uh, we mentioned in our manuscript as well uh, that we suspect that the range of harm may span across 94-96% range because when we look at the liberal oxygen group with that saturation range, were uh, were exposed to oxygen, they had an increased uh, risk of mortality. So that, that's where that number came from. Um, And we, we, as you said, we went along to, uh, we had a fortunate opportunity to collaborate with BMJ to actually publish a guideline on this topic, BMJ Rapid uh, Recommendation. And we made a strong recommendation for not initiating oxygen therapy for patients whose SpO2 is greater than 92%, and this is a specific patient population for uh, acute stroke or myocardial infarction, and a weak recommendation for 90 to 92% um, because, again, the number of patients included in those studies with that uh, oxygen saturation um, range was uh, smaller.
1: Yeah, let me interpret this. If I'm going to use oxygen, I shouldn't let the saturation get higher than 96%. Getting higher than 96% increases the harm. Is that correct?
0: Yes. So the patient is already on oxygen. It should be actively either titrating down or our our target aim shouldn't be greater than 96% or higher.
1: Okay. And clearly, if the saturation is higher than 92%, there's no good reason for us to start oxygen and we could get harm. And we just don't really know at the 90 to 92% level because there just aren't enough data to make a clear decision about those. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I would say the evidence is weaker for a patient with lower saturation around 90 92 um, but data is quite strong, um, and that's what enabled us to make a strong recommendation for not starting therapy for SPO2 greater than 92%, especially in, in patient with acute stroke and uh, myocardial infarction because uh, multiple RCTs have shown that as well.
1: One of the practical problems uh, in the hospital is the measurement of estimated uh, oxygen saturation. And th- there are factors where you don't get a And I've had patients where we aren't getting an accurate saturation of oxygen just from the attachment to the finger. Did that come up at all in your uh, research?
0: So the studies sometimes reported the SpO2 and uh, some of the study, mostly the critical care literature, had a lot of uh, the PaO2. They tend to measure PaO2 because they have uh, access to arterial uh, oxygen Mm -hmm. tension data, Uh, but uh, we haven't really come across different methods of uh, measuring um, oxygen saturation. Um, usually it was done by the the SpO2 uh, monitoring uh, probe uh, of some sort. But outside of the, the study, anecdotally, um, I also encounters uh, patients whose SpO2 on their finger is not reliable. Uh, sometimes they have artificial nails and nail polish and uh, circulation issues, I think all sort of goes towards potentially creating a, a difficult to interpret SPO2 number. So.
1: I think I understand the recommendation. I know what I want to happen with my patients. But at least in the hospitals that I've worked in, there's a systems issue because there's no physician who has started the oxygen, started by nursing staff or respiratory therapy, it seems to always happen in the middle of the night. I, I don't know why, but it seems to always happen in the <laughs> middle of the night. Uh, you're only laughing because that's true in Canada also. So have you had any success in your hospital in developing a new approach to the use of oxygen in routine floor patients? And the ICU is certainly a different category where mm-hmm. I think you would have more control than we do on a regular medicine floor.
0: Well, absolutely. I think uh, ICU intensive care units definitely benefit from more of a closer monitoring equipments and both the equipments and nursing care as well. The nursing ratio is much better in uh, intensive care units. But on the ward, in in the light of new evidence, we've um, really looked into changing our EMR, electronic medical records system, uh, and the the automatic order sets. Because one of the problems that we identified is that the automatic order set uh, when you put in the oxygen therapy order, it automatically defaults to greater than ninety-four percent as a target. And there, you know, I think this is often the case for many uh, electronic medical record-based systems, where, uh, or even paper-based, there's no policy for upper limit of oxygen therapy target. So that's what we looked into.
1: Yeah. So uh, I was talking to one of the physicians who's involved in quality measurement at one of the hospitals that I work at. And uh, he's very interested in this conversation and agrees that uh, trying to modify admission orders in our hospitals might be the way to go. I think that what your article and your research has done is it's given us a charge to go forward. And I hope that all the hospitalists and residents who are listening to this podcast, will uh, read the article, uh, which is an excellent article, and take uh, very seriously the outline that you've provided for us uh, so that we can actually use less oxygen and have better outcomes for our patients. So all that being said, this is your chance, one minute, to give a pitch for what you think is the most important thing you want other physicians to learn from your article and from this podcast.
0: I think it's an important uh, concept that I want to get across and uh, many of the study authors want to get across is that the the mantra of uh, the oxygen is always good and it must be uh, even better to give more of oxygen and and correct it to super therapeutic or super normal uh, level uh, is actually harmful. And recognizing that the traditional mantra that we've been taught comes with uh, with a harm, and we need to look into the evidence in a more more of a critical lens, and actually carrying it uh, forward in the clinical practice, because I think it's always very difficult to break habits or or change clinical practice pattern when the new evidence becomes available. But I think it's really uh, important for us to uh, carry forward because there has been many studies looking into correcting, overzealous, so to speak, correction of physiologic matters. Um, Physiological values actually produce more harm, such as, you know, transfusion threshold or glucose uh, targets um, and such. So I think it's time for us to look at the oxygen in the same critical lens as the other medication and be aware of uh, how we're prescribing it and despite what our traditional teaching has been.
1: Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast and for writing this article because I agree with you 100%. This is a very, very important topic and you've brought data to it, logic to it, and really explained it very well. Thank you so much for uh, joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. uh, It was a pleasure.
1: Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This important article addresses a problem that we see in hospitalized patients often. The first important point to make is that the pulse oximetry is not always correct, and if the patient's appearance and the pulse oximetry seem to disagree, sometimes one does need an arterial blood gas to decide whether or not the patient really needs oxygen. This article and their previous meta-analysis show clearly that there's no reason to have a pulse oximetry greater than 96%. That should be our maximum pulse oximetry in patients receiving oxygen because hyperoxemia does entail complications. The exact right level to start oxygen is unclear. The data are excellent that anything above 92 does not indicate a need for oxygen. Uh, 90 to 92 is still unclear with inadequate data. Finally, this is a systems problem that those of us who work in hospitals need to address at their local institution to try to limit the unnecessary use of oxygen. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast.
0: For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org oncall on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.